Well, this morning we're, we're picking up where we left off, I guess it was five Sundays ago, in our study of the book of Genesis. Um, we've said along the way uh, in this study that from beginning to end, Genesis is a story of, of grace. It's a story of God's sovereign, electing, unstoppable, relentless, amazing grace. And, and, and we've just been singing marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, grace that's greater than all of our sin. That's Genesis. Is there's this avalanche that's growing and building in Genesis, avalanche of sin that just keeps, keeps, keeps getting bigger. There, there, is, there is grace that always abounds more and more in, in, this, in this account. And so we started looking at kind of the major players in the Israel's beginnings as a nation. We call the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and today Jacob. And, and when we see these these men were not seeing flawless people who, who are these sort of mythical, godlike heroes for the Lord. That's not what we see. No, what stands out is not their worthiness as, as men, but what stands out is the grace and faithfulness of God. It, it, it's over and over again we see this in spite of their unfaithfulness. And so God remains faithful faithful when the when the very people to whom he made the promises become the greatest threat to the fulfillment of those promises and that's not clear almost anywhere than than with the than than Jacob as we're going to see today now we got we're we're taking this in large chunks and kind of zeroing in on certain episodes but but this repeated cycle throughout Genesis of 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 just things are out of control and because of sin there's all kinds of problems and then God's grace just shows up in these significant ways and, and we're kind of highlighting those 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 places to, to to see how the Lord's doing that and remember the the whole purpose and Jim alluded to this before he read that that that, that the Lord is preparing his people for entrance into the promised land and, and one of the things we're going to see, what he wants them to go in is not pounding their chest, we are enough. He wants them to go in saying, Lord, you are able. And that's, what, that's, what, that's the message that's come through this scene. But we're going we're gonna to kind of take in a lot of the context here and, and, and lead up to Genesis 32. And so, so most of, I know some of you have grown up around the church, you know some of these stories in, in Genesis, so some will be familiar, this will be familiar to you, others it, it may not be. So I'm just going to have to do a very quick, fast flyover <coughs> of this context, but most of Jacob's life was spent trying to get things for himself. He, he's doing whatever he can to get the things that he wanted. And so he, he, he wants, we could say, the blessings of God, but he doesn't want God. He doesn't want the giver of those blessings. And so there's no, there's no reaching out for the Lord. There's just grasping for and striving after and scheming to get whatever he can get from God, the good gifts of God. And so the wrestling match that we're looking at this morning in Genesis 32, this is not the first and only time that there's this struggling and striving and contending in, in Jacob's life. His whole life was struggle. Even, even in, in the way he came to be, his, his mother, Rebecca, she, she struggled for 20 years to become pregnant. This was a, a great, great grief in her life. Then she finally conceived twins. Now, no pregnancy is easy. Trust me, I know. Um, but, but certainly, pregnancy with twins, this is, that's always difficult. But in this case, it, her, her pregnancy was especially difficult. And and, and back in Genesis 20, 25, verse 22, 
<laughs> this is what the text says. It says the children struggled together within her. They're already, these brothers are already fighting in utero. And, 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 and God explains the essence of the struggle in the next verse. He says, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So what, he, what the Lord's saying is contrary to, contrary to the natural order, contrary to kind of cultural convention, we talked about this, the laws of the firstborn, and where everything goes to the firstborn. But contrary to that natural way, the younger will be the one through whom the promised one would come through whom the seed would, would, would continue to go on. So this, this warfare, this struggle, it begins in the womb. And, and, and when Rebecca finally does give birth, out comes this furry, fiery, little red-headed Esau. And, and, and yet he doesn't come out easily. If you remember, he, his, his twin brother Jacob's like holding on to his heel as he's coming out of the womb. And, and so Jacob is named, his, his name means heel grabber, which is a, is a kind of a way of saying deceiver, cheater, schemer. That, that's the idea of his name. That's what Jacob means. And this was his life. And so the troubles aren't, that the troubles in, in the womb and at his birth, that's just the beginning. This, this is a divided, royally messed up family. It's a disaster. And, and so mom and dad, they each have their favorite son. You know, Isaac likes Esau because he's, you know, got a bow and arrow over his back and he's dragging in the carcass of whatever animal he's killed and he thinks that's great. And mom kind of likes the more uh, contemplative Jacob. And, and so this is, it's just, it causes all kinds of problems within this family. And we don't have time to, again, look at all these episodes. But even, even though, listen, even though God told Isaac very specifically that his younger son Jacob would be the son of the promise. That's not what Jacob wanted. He preferred Esau. And so he, he, so he ignored what God said. He, he hoped to kind of overrule God's word on that. And then Jacob himself, he, he's not trusting what God said and what God has promised and trusting God to provide it. So he spent his whole life scheming and deceiving to take it by force, to take what he thought belonged to him. And so he he manipulated Esau into selling him his birthright. He deceived his father into um, giving him the, the status that Isaac intended to confer upon Esau as that, as that beloved firstborn son. He basically swindled away all of Esau's inheritance, all of his money, all of his security, all of his blessing, everything. And so this, this family... I just want you to see this family is a disaster. This is like the family you see on the Jerry Springer show or something like that. I mean, this, it's a mess. Everyone in the family is grasping for something that they want. They, they want the blessings, but they refuse to look to God for it. They refuse to bend their knee in submission to the Lord and, 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 and what he says. And yet, this is what I want you to see. In, in, in the midst of all of this, God is, is working. He is this gracious, covenant-keeping Lord. He's in the midst of this family and all of its disastrous failures. God's promise will be kept. They cannot thwart it. This is what we see. This is that unstoppable, relentless, 
amazing grace that we see throughout Genesis, and it's, it's evident here. So after Jacob's deception, after uh, he swindled away Esau's birthright and all of that inheritance and taken this blessing upon himself, we read that Esau, this is the words, he comforted himself, comforted himself by planning to kill Jacob. I know we say, ooh, that's awful, but we have you laid on your bed at night. Maybe not thought of murdering someone, but you've, you've rolled around in your mind, payback, revenge. This is, this is what Esau is doing. So Rebecca loves Jacob more. He, she sends her baby boy off to go back to her hometown, off to Haran, and, and Jacob's no doubt as he's heading out, he's afraid that his brother's going to go behind him and come and try to kill him. And so he's, he's making chase, trying to get out of town. And, and the text says that as he's going, he gets tired and he lays down and he falls asleep. And so this is Genesis 28. He, he's, he's not looking for the Lord as he's doing this, as he's going out. But God in his grace comes to Jacob, if you remember, in a dream. And, and he, he, Genesis 28, he dreams of this ladder that comes down from heaven to earth. There's the angels ascending and descending upon it. And, and, and it's as if God comes down to this lonely, fearful, rebellious, but chosen by God heel grabber. And, and, and Jacob has every reason to fear that, that God's going to come down to crush him, to curse him. But instead, what happens? God is coming down in that dream to bless him. He's coming down to bless him. Genesis 28, if you want to flip back there with me. We read this blessing, verse 13. Text says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and, and, and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is a a uh, re-statement of that covenant that the Lord has made already to Abraham. And so we just say, though, considering who this is and what this family is like, we say, what grace? What grace? Jacob is a fugitive. But God promises to bring him back home. Jacob has no wife, no children. And yet God promises him abundant offspring. Jacob is basically broke. He left home with nothing to his name, but God promises to give him land. He has no, Jacob has no reason to think that he's ever someone God could use to bless others. All his life is spent looking out for himself. But God promises that through him all of the families of the earth will be blessed. It's just grace. God's, God's telling Jacob in this, in this, in this dream that, that these divine promises are what will shape his future. It's certainly not because he's so deserving. In fact, it's in spite of the fact that he's so undeserving. God has begun a work in Jacob's life. But Jacob, he's going to continue to be a work in progress. We can relate to that, can't we? Um... But so Jacob, he found his way to Haran, and over the years, this trickster, this schemer, deceiver, he becomes tricked multiple times. Uh, um, he worked for seven years to marry the woman that he loved and had his eye on, Rachel, 
And seven years he waited, only to discover on the morning after their wedding that he had ac- actually married her sister, Leah. Um, all right, if you haven't read the story, you'll have to go find that out. And it worked for another seven years then to marry Rachel. Jacob the cheater, he's also cheated by his father-in-law, uh, Laban, out of, out of wages that, are, that were rightfully his. And so this is his life there. But after 20 years in Haran, far away from his family, far away from the promised land, we find that God is in the process of fulfilling his promises to Jacob. Jacob does have a people. He has a wife, not just a wife, four wives. Uh, um, he has 11 children. He has possessions. He has, uh, he's rich with flocks and herds, and the Lord has blessed him there. He, but what does he not have? He doesn't have a place. He doesn't have a land. He doesn't have the place God promised him. So, look, we're getting close now to Genesis 32. Genesis chapter 31, verse 3. Look there with me. Then, in that place, in that situation, the Lord said to Jacob. I know we read that and just like, just pass right by there. It's not just an editorial comment. Who's speaking? This is God taking initiative. God in grace moving towards Jacob. God spoke to him. And he said, return. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred. And what? And I will be with you. So Jacob prepares to do just that. He, he, this is evidence of the Lord's work in his life. And, and again, the good work that God's doing. And so what's he going to face there, though? Is Esau going to be still looking to take him out, kill him? I mean, we're told in the early part of chapter 32 that he, he sent messengers ahead to tell Esau that he was coming. And then we find later in, in this chapter 32, he sends just waves of gifts to Esau, hoping to appease him. He's not just saying, hey, I'm sorry for all that, you know, taking everything away from you, basically. He's saying, no, I want to repay you for all that I've stolen from you. That's, that's kind of the, what's signified by this. But in verse 6, we're told that Jacob's messengers, they return after give, div, telling Esau that Jacob's on his way. And this is what they report to Jacob. They say, Esau is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. This is not likely a welcoming party. Um, this is a small army. And so Jacob is understandably afraid. He's petrified, verse 7. Because the million-dollar question is this. Is, will Esau come in peace to reconcile or he, will he come in war to get revenge? This is the question. But again, we see here that God is blessing Jacob, not just by providing for him and giving him possessions and a, and a people, not just in protecting him up to this point. He's, providing, he's blessing him by changing him. He's working in him. He's not, he's not running from his failure anymore. He's facing it. He's, he's not scheming. He's, he's not making plans to use others or to use God to get just the things he wants. Instead, he does something here that he's never done before. At least not, it's not ever recorded elsewhere in Genesis. In verse 9, in verse nine Jacob turns to God in prayer. He turns, cries out to the Lord. See, he prays what's the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis. And in this prayer, he's, he's acknowledging his own unworthiness. He doesn't deserve anything from God. He, and, he's, and he's confessing God's 
steadfast, loyal, promise-keeping, faithfulness, and covenant-keeping love. And he's asking for help. He's asking for grace in this critical moment. He's saying, oh God, save me from Esau. Deliver me. This desperation. And so after praying under the cover of darkness, uh, we see this in verse 22 there, he, he <coughs> gathers his wives and gathers his children and gathers all of his belongings and he sends them across the river and he retreats and he's all alone. This is the setting now. So he's all alone in this darkness. He's between this rock and a hard place. He's behind him is Laban. He cannot go back to that life. And in front of him is Esau and his 400 men. And so he's met with the situation. He has no idea what to do with it. Let's just get that sense uh, as, we, as we look at this story. So this is the dark night of Jacob's soul. He has no more plans. He has no more plots. He has no more schemes, no more strategies, no more tricks up his sleeves. He has exhausted all of his options. He is at the end of himself, we could say. And remember, this isn't, who brought him there? God. God said, go back. God provided for his return. God brought him to this place where he is at the end of himself. Have you been there? Maybe you're there even today. This is desperation. I have no idea what to do, Lord. I would just say it's, it's God's mercy even that you would be here today if that's where you find yourself. And if you've been there, you can testify that God was in that. This is the place where God loves to meet us and to bless us in ways we don't expect. And so it's there. It's, it's alone in this pitch black darkness that, that Jacob feels something and it's this strong hand that grabs hold of him unexpectedly and there's this wrestling match that ensues it's not some light-hearted playful tussle this is an all-out sweaty strenuous furious fight this is like mortal combat here and this becomes the turning point in jacob's life this is this is god's surprising grace to jacob it doesn't feel like that in the but that's exactly what it is, as we're going to see. What Jacob didn't know, what we often fail to recognize when we're in situations like this, is how God is helping us and blessing us. What we have in mind is that God would just somehow remove our problem, would just make our enemy disappear. That's, that's a blessing. But God doesn't always do it that way. God, God answered Jacob's prayer by bringing him to the place where he is left utterly dependent upon the Lord. And listen, the way God often helps us is by breaking us of that inherent, residual, stubborn self-dependence so that we lean completely upon Him. He graciously breaks us of our self-reliance so that, so that He can bless us as we cling to Him in our brokenness. All right, so let's, let's see. We'll, we'll, we'll move quickly through this account, but let's see God's grace to Jacob and to us in this, in this wrestling 
match here in Genesis 32. So the first thing that we're going to see is that in his grace, God initiates a new battle. He initiates a new battle. So there's this mysterious man that just shows up and, and he lays hold of Jacob in the night. He comes out of nowhere to make battle with Jacob as he's all alone. And it's going to be clear by the end of the passage and by Hosea's commentary on this account in Hosea 12, but it's going to be clear that this is, this is not an ordinary man. Um, this is God himself. This is a manifestation of God himself. Most agree this is probably the pre-incarnate son of God. This is Christ. Christ who's pursued, who's now taking hold of Jacob. And what I want you to see in that is God is the aggressor here. God is the initiator. I know, I know maybe sometimes you've heard this passage used as kind of a, an example of wrestling in prayer all night with God. Now that's a fine thing to do. I don't think that's the lesson behind the struggle. Jacob's not initiating this. Jacob's passive. God is laying hold. God is initiating. God's holding on to Jacob to bring him to the end of a self-reliance and of a striving. That's what's happening here. All of his life, Jacob thought Laban was the problem. Esau was his adversary. He was the, he was the struggle. He, he struggled. He schemed to get all these blessings he thought that other people were taking from him. But now, at it's, it's some point in this struggle, he finds out it's really none other than God himself who's struggling. Really, Jacob was his own worst enemy. That's the realization. But God is mercifully wrestling him in order to reveal that to him. That's what's happening. And we're like Jacob in that way, aren't we? We think the enemy, we think the problem is always out there. The problem is fill in the blank. It's them. It's him. It's her. It's those circumstances, it's my wife, it's my husband, it's my parents, it's my boss, it's my church. Come on, I, you know, you think it, no. It's my difficult circumstances, it, it's, it's something outside of me. God, take care of that problem for me. But the enemy, the problem, it's, it's not primarily out there. The problem is in me, the problem is me. And that's the place God most often works. He's changing us, and God will do whatever it takes to change us. Listen, as we see this story, it's not like we're to interpret all of our life and say, all right, where are the wrestling matches going on with God in my life? And, and we're looking for this kind of duplication of this, this Jacob and, and, and God wrestling, duking it out kind of moment. That's not the point, and so don't, I'm not asking you to see all of the, but just say, you look through the scripture, and this is one account where God uses all kinds of means to, to accomplish his, his good and perfect will in our lives. He gives Paul a thorn in the flesh. He, he does all of these different things. He'll do whatever it takes, but, uh, but, but God, will, God will do what it, what it takes to change us. Tim, Tim Keller, he said, God sometimes has to wrestle us into a changed life rather than comfort us into a changed life. Isn't that true? So in God, in, in, in love, and, and it is in love, God has to wrestle Jacob in. God delighted in Jacob. God loved Jacob. God chose Jacob. No one could snatch Jacob out of the Lord's hands. And yet it was because God loved him and had chosen him that he wrestled him into blessing. 
true blessing into a changed life. And so it is with us as well. God will do what it takes. So Jacob, he's used to fights. He's used to struggles. It's been his whole life. But this was new. This was a new kind of battle. This was graciously initiated by God. Second, we see the Lord's grace in this. In his grace, God creates this new motivation. He creates a new motivation. So in the midst of this fight, God in his mercy, he seems to do something uh, with Jacob like, um, like a dads do with their kids when they're wrestling on the ground. And um, this is getting harder and harder the older I get. I like fake that I'm faking it when I get beat now. Um, or, or you're just arm wrestling a kid or something like that. You know, a grown man arm wrestling a little kid. And, you, oh, no, you're going to beat me. You're going to beat me. And then they start getting kind of cocky and they kind of get a little swagger about them. Like, oh, I can beat my dad in arm wrestling. And then you just, boom, you know, slam them down or something like that. And they go off crying. No, 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 just kidding. But, I mean, so it's, it's kind of what you see here. There's this, quote, battle, this wrestling match between Jacob and God. It's this back and forth is kind of the way it plays out and 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 it's this all-night fight now i didn't wrestle in school or anything growing up uh, but i know some of some of the students uh uh have wrestled and i i think like a, a typical like high school wrestling match is six minutes unless it goes into overtime or something like that and that's exhausting that's so intense but this goes on all night long it's it's hard to conceive of the intensity of this just the the length of this fight. Um, then in the midst of it, though, God, God does something. We, we read this just a moment ago. He, he reaches out and he touches Jacob's hip, verse 25, and he dislocates it. I mean, the hip is like the strong, one of the strongest parts of the human body. If you play sports, almost any sport, you'll tell you it's all in the hips. I mean, boxing, it's not just arms. It's, it's throwing, using those hips. That's like the, the core of who you are. In golf, it's the same thing. In soccer, kicking, any, anything, it's, it's all hips. And, and so, certainly in wrestling. And so what? Jacob, he's crippled there with a simple touch. A touch. A, a touch is all it took, and it was over. I mean, so, so you see, this, this isn't an ordinary wrestling match kind of with two evenly matched people. No, when, and it, again, with thinking of high school wrestling, when you wrestle competitively in high school or college or something like that, you, you wrestle in your own weight class. You wrestle with somebody that's 25 pounds heavier than you and is, and is a trained wrestler, you have no chance. So you've got to wrestle in your class. But Jacob's wrestling with Almighty God. I mean, God could have ended this thing in a half a second he's, he's, he's nothing but what did he do in his grace in his wisdom he allowed this match to go on all night long and he touched his hip and it was over God, why because God's after more than winning a wrestling match he's not trying to prove himself he, he is after Jacob's heart he's dealing with him on the inside by breaking him down on the outside. And God breaks Jacob at a strongest point. He, he's wounded in, in his strength. It's, and it's because God is going right for his heart. Sinclair Ferguson, in the message I listened to on the sermon, he said, do you see that in order to have Jacob's heart, God is prepared to dislocate Jacob's hip? 
I mean, you have, have you ever had in your life some joint put out of place by God? Metaphorically speaking. Have you ever had your plans or your dreams dislocated? The way to your heart, the way to our hearts is often through the dislocation of something that we rely upon for strength. What else, or what would that place be for you? What, that's what God's doing with Jacob. That's what's happening here. And, and you see, it's not to punish him. It's to draw him in. Because finally, for the first time, Jacob, he's broken, he's humbled, he, he's wounded in the place of his strength, his sense of competency is crushed, his pride is, is, is humbled. He cannot manufacture this victory. He can't strategize his way out of this fight. He can't manipulate this battle. He's given an injury that's going to prevent him from being able to win in his own strength. That's what's happening. He's wounded. I mean, we, we all want the blessing, but we, we don't want to be wounded. And we all, we all want to be blessed, but we don't want to beg. But Jacob here, he's finally in the first, and for the first time, he's desperate enough to beg no more scheming, no more striving. He is humbled before God. And so you see again, look at verse 26. The passage says that after, after this wounding, after the Lord touches his hip, God says to Jacob, you must let me go before the breaking of the day. What is that about? Because we talked about this in our series on the glory of God, but God's saying, if you see my face, if you see my glory, you're gonna die. That's essentially what he's saying. That's what's going on. And Jacob says, I Listen to this. I will not let you go unless you bless me. I mean, when the fight, when this fight began, when Jacob was first attacked, how did Jacob wrestle? What's he trying to do? What was his game plan? What was his attitude? What was motivating him in contending and striving in this, in this wrestling match? When he was first attacked, he was using all of his stubborn self-sufficiency, all of his manipulation, all of his might to get away, to protect himself, so to, 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 to get away. And you see this turning point here. Once he's touched in the hip, Jacob becomes this clinging child before the Lord. And the commentators all agree, this is the turning point. This is when he knew it was God. It was in verse 25 when Jacob says, I will not let you go. God, please don't leave. It's in that moment of pain, it's in that moment of weakness where he gets it. Uh, Derek Kidner's commentaries on Genesis is very helpful, but he, he says, when God touched Jacob's socket, it was defeat and victory all wrapped up in one. <laughs> I mean, it was defeat and victory because Jacob's response to the pain, Jacob's response to the loss, his response to this dislocated hip that God himself caused it was the defeat that brings victory. Because in defeat, in this defeat, Jacob clings to God. This is what God was after. I mean, it's often, isn't it, in our greatest victories and the, and the greatest blessings, they, they come out of the ashes of our greatest supposed defeats. We, we see things wrong. As soon as Jacob is crippled, He's able to hang on to the Lord for dear life, which is victory. He 
He knew, he knew now that if God didn't bless him, he had no hope. So he says, God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, this has been his motto the whole, his whole life, and it bless me. He's looking for the blessings of God. That's been motivating him since he was, before he was born. And so the words are the same here, but the meaning is completely different. I, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God, don't go. Don't leave. I need you. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. That's the cry here. And with these words in verse 26, we know a change has taken place. This is, this is a different Jacob. This is a changed man by God's grace. There's a new motivation. He's come face to face with the living God, verse 30 says, and he is now desperately embracing him. So that's it. We see in his grace, there's this new battle that God initiates in his grace. He brings this, he develops this new motivation and, and radically changes the motivation of Jacob, and he does this for us as well. Third, in his grace, God provides a new identity. Look at the exchange that takes place in verses 27 to 29 there. God, God says in verse 27, what, what is your name? Now, he's not ignorant. He's like, ah, what's your name again? I forgot, like we are when we you know, meet people for the second time. Um, he, he, what he's wanting is not just to, for Jacob to confess his name. He's wanting Jacob to confess his character. Remember what his name means. He's saying, who are you? And so Jacob, as we said, it's, it's heel grabber, it's cheater, it's, it's deceiver. I mean, years later when the prophet Jeremiah wrote that in those insightful words about the human heart and the condition of our hearts, and, and, and he says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I mean, that word translated deceitful is the same, it's Jacob. It's the same Hebrew root. It's the heart is Jacob and desperately sick. That's his name. His name here then is his confession. It it had to be painful for him to say, what's your name? (sighs) Jacob. Jacob, the cheater, the twister, the deceiver. I, I have no, no right to your blessing. That's what he's confessing. But now God has gotten to the heart of the matter. And, and that is Jacob's heart. That's what he's wanted all along. And so God in his grace, he doesn't leave him lingering in that, that kind of pit of shame. Look at verse 28. The Lord says to him, this is good. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, no longer deceiver, but Israel. He who strives with God, or God strives, that's Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, both of those meanings are true. I mean, obviously, Jacob's wrestled with God. He's prevailed, not in the sense that he, he you know, hung in there with God on his own, but he's prevailed that he... He, he, he was hanging on until God blessed him. But first, what happened? God, God prevailed over Jacob. God, God prevailed over him by crippling him of his self, self-dependence. And so, but this is the blessing he receives here. It's a new name. I mean, that is the blessing. This, the blessings are something that are spoken by God. He says, I, I will not leave. I will not let go of you until you bless me. And what is 
the Lord say? He says, I've given you a new name. It's a new identity. It's a new, it's a new record. That is a good word, isn't it, for us? He's saying everything about your past, Jacob, that's not you. Your identity, Jacob, it's not your baggage. It's not your bankruptcy as a person, your character. It's not your shame. It's not your past. Your identity is Israel. It's in the relentlessness of God and his grace. That's who you are. God fights. God strives. God will prevail. That's who you are. And that gives Jacob, that gives us, beloved in Christ, that gives us a whole new way, not just of living, but of being. We who are in Christ, we have a new name, we have a new identity, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are, we are and that has been graciously given to us by God. Our name is not that we have overcome, our name is that God has been merciful, God has striven, and he has prevailed. And then last, we see his grace in this. In his grace, God gives a new posture. I think this is the most beautiful scene. I love this story, but this is, this is so beautiful. And, it, and it's, it's verse 31, and it's a scene of Jacob limping. The sun rose. Even that's beautiful. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. This is a wound of grace. This is the posture of a changed man. I mean, to have Jacob's heart, we said earlier, God's prepared to dislocate his hip. And, and yet we read that, verse 29, there he, there the Lord, blessed him. I mean, the blessing of God sometimes looking, looks like, brothers and sisters, it looks like walking with a limp. That's essentially the posture of the Christian life, limping. This is the walk of those who have been healed and transformed by the gracious work of God, the touch of God. We, we, we have those limps, and we may have those limps the rest of our lives, just like Jacob did. We're told that. There may be limps, there may be scars from places in our lives where we were full of self-dependence and God graciously painfully touched us I, 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 I can just testify in my own life I mean this is when I went on sabbatical I was struggling with those just thoughts of discouragement and worry and just anxiety that were kind of gnawing at me and weighing on me and I thought the goal of sabbatical was to get that fixed to not have those anymore to not deal with dark thoughts of despair anymore and just be bright and sunny again. Like I thought that was the hope. That was the goal. But God was gracious to show me and is continuing to teach me and through counsel and care of, of others that he wants me to trust him through the valley. That's very different. These struggles may be limps that I walk with the rest of my life. And I realize that now. But, but he's actually able to use this limp to keep my heart trusting in his mercy and leaning into him. And, and he's able to, to use that to, 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 to keep my heart in his mercy no matter what's going on in my life. It's not just a reminder of the problem. It's a reminder of how much I need God and how good he is even in the valley. 
And so that's what, that's what limps do. They're not there to remind us just of the struggle and the sorrow. They're there to remind us of the place of his love that moved us to surrender. They remind us of a place where God met us and blessed us through brokenness. They remind us of, of Christ's strength that shines through our weakness as we depend upon him. And so to be truly blessed by God, to enjoy the blessing of God, it's not to emerge from the struggles of life just completely unscathed. It's to emerge from them having been pressed more deeply into God and drawn closer to him, to be more desperate for him. One writer I, I, I read this week, he, he says, be careful who you pity and be careful who you envy when you start thinking about limps and struggles. Be careful who you pity and be careful who you envy. Do you have a limp? Are you wounded? Are you broken? Let that drive you to rest in the Lord. I mean, if you're here and your past and your shame is behind you and you have a version of Esau and 400 men in front of you, you know the psalmist, he says this in Psalm 46, he says, be still and know that I am God. Do you know how that psalm ends? It's with these words, the God of Jacob, the God of Jacob is our refuge. If God is a refuge for Jacob, God can be a refuge for us. Now listen, it would be great, and we don't have time to linger here, but it would be great if we could say that once you come to the place of this open-handed surrender to God... We can, we can count on all of good from that point on in our lives. Nothing but roses and, you know, green pastures. But in Jacob's life, we see the blessing, the blessing that he, he gets from God here. It doesn't mean a lack of struggle and sorrow. And it's a short time later. Just fast forward here, and, 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 and we'll pick this up next week. But it's a short time later. Jacob's cradling a newborn baby as he sits beside the lifeless body of his wife, Rachel. The love of Jacob's life, he told him to name their son as she's dying, Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But J- Jacob obviously firsthand knows the power of a name, and so he, he doesn't honor her dying wish, and he names him Ben-Jamin, son of my right hand. He had learned that God's greatest blessings come often through great pain, and he was convinced that because God kept he keeps his promises. Even this sorrow will be used in the hands of God for blessings in his life. And so right after Rachel dies, the very next verse, verse 21 of, of, of Genesis 35 says, that, says this, and it's subtle. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent toward the tower, beyond the tower of Eder. It's been a while since he got that name, but this is the first time in the story that Jacob's actually called Israel. He's living out of his name. He's living this new identity. He's putting his hope in God who makes, who keeps his promises to his people. And so who is this, who is this God that Jacob has determined he can trust with even this heartbreaking sorrow? He's put his hope in the God who will one day give, who will provide the son of his right hand to become the son of his sorrow. The promised son, Jesus, will one day stand in Samaria, stand beside what is called Jacob's well, talking with a woman who will ask this question, are you greater than our father Jacob? 
And the answer, of course, is, oh, yes, Jesus is far greater than Jacob. Jacob has lived his life full of greed and deceit. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jacob lived his life, most of it selfishly grasping for blessing from God, even from birth. Jesus' birth evidenced a refusal to grasp and hold on and cling to the blessings of God. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, he was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing. He let go of the riches of heaven so that, we, that he might make us co-heirs of all that he stands to inherit. Jacob was given a, a vision of this ladder with angels ascending and descending. Jesus makes it clear. He is the ladder. He is the link between heaven and earth. No one comes to the Father but through him. Jacob wrestles alone on a dark night to gain a blessing for himself. Jesus would later wrestle alone on a dark night in the Garden of Gethsemane to gain a blessing for us. He, he, he knew he wouldn't just walk with a limp the rest of his life. He would lay down his life when he came out of that garden. Jacob couldn't look on the face of his adversary and live, but God has given to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the greatest blessing God could ever, ever, ever give you. Because, and because he has given Christ to you, and for you, you have everything you need. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things. You don't have to grasp. You don't have to grab for blessing. You don't have to strive for validation through your performance or through your appearance. You don't have to do those things. You don't have to earn. You don't have to maintain your, quote, enoughness before God by your lifestyle. You don't have to do any of that. You just open your arms and receive from the Lord who freely gives us all things in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help these words. Help this these truths, Father, to sink down into us, Lord. Because we, we confess we still cling to that sense of self-reliance and, 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 and you, yet you hold out this blessing of, of being dependent upon you. And so we, we, we pray that you would help us to do just that. We, we, we echo the words of the psalmist, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. May our hope be in you. May we find our help in you alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.